Cello Chat, and I'm excited to have with me today Dr. Zachary Prusel. Zachary, how are you doing? Good. Uh, very busy this summer. I have a lot of different projects going on, but I'm happy that we're at a point where this is possible again, and it's not just sitting behind the screen. <laughs> yeah, it's a nice problem to have. Excellent. Well, uh, as a way to lead up to these summer activities... Can you tell about your background and how you got to where you are? Sure. Well, you know, I grew up in suburban Chicago and I come from a musical family. My father is also a cellist. He's in the Lyric Opera Chicago Orchestra. And my mom is a violinist and she has quite a large teaching studio that she just runs right out of the house. So growing up, I was exposed to music all the time. And I decided to play the cello just because my dad did. And when I was two years old, it was kind of silly. But I thought that all boys played the cello and all girls <laughs> played the violin because that's what I saw my parents doing. Um, so like it or not, my fate was sealed. Um, although it was not a, you know, sort of inevitable thing that I would go into music. In fact, for most of my childhood, I was very much indecisive about what I would ultimately end up doing. And uh, I remember when I was a sophomore in high school, I had to give a speech on my future career path. And I was actually interested in journalism at that point. So I researched it and I had all these articles. It was things like, oh, you know, journalists, they often have to skip meals and work long hours. And I was like, oh, I'm not interested in that sort of lifestyle. Little did I know, right? Uh, <laughs> so then that summer I went to Interlochen and Van Cliburn came. This was towards the end of his life, actually. This was 2006. And he played the Tchaikovsky Piano Concerto with the orchestra as sort of a throwback to his success at the competition. In, in Moscow, um, and then I was doing Schubert Cello Quintet in a really good group, and I was like, okay, like, I, I could do this. Like, I was really into the intensity of it, and I really wanted to just explore all of the great music that was out there, because my whole life, I'd, you know, hear snippets of things like, oh, the Strauss, Death and Transfiguration, oh, the Frog Sonata, I'd be like, oh. What are these pieces? I have to figure those out. Uh, so then I started practicing much more, and I wound up at the New England Conservatory for undergrad, studying with Yi Sun Kim of the Borromeo String Quartet. And when I was there, um, you know, I my first year I just lived in the practice room. It was pretty bad. My father came to visit me in Boston, and he knew more about the city than I did just because he had read the guidebook on the plane. Like I didn't even know where the subway station was nearby. It was embarrassing. And so then my second year I wanted to get more well-rounded, so it wasn't just the cello all the time. And I decided to join the student newspaper, which was called the Penguin, uh, by virtue of the fact that musicians tend to look like penguins when we're in our tuxedos and that actually ended up being uh, a really cool experience because I started thinking about broader issues related to classical music in terms of audience engagement, music school curriculum, uh, music school experiences, and how that leads people on career paths. And I would also really enjoy the feedback I got from students and faculty on the articles I was writing. Um, so that kind of started to get me thinking a little more outside the immediate path of just performance. I realized I wanted to do something beyond that. So I was actually co-editor of that newspaper for a couple years. And then 
I did my master's at Eastman and joined the arts leadership program there, which involves courses in entrepreneurship and things like how to build your own ensemble, um, how to write grants, you know, giving you extra musical skills that you can use for different types of projects. Uh, and of course, you know, my major was cello performance still. And I studied with David Ying there of the Ying Quartet um, and got to meet a, a whole different set of uh, teachers and, and students and uh, make new connections. Uh, but then after Eastman, I was sort of a little bit adrift and wasn't entirely sure what I wanted to do. If anything, I was kind of burnt out after six years at two intensive conservatories. So I decided to come back to Chicago because I still had a lot of connections. And I had begun teaching when I was in Rochester. I, I taught at the Canucks School and I had a teaching assistantship. And I knew that I definitely wanted to do something with that. Um, and so in Chicago, I ended up teaching for a couple different programs, including uh, more significantly at the Music Institute of Chicago. And I was doing that for a few years. Uh, mainly teaching, not so much performing, just because I kind of got filled up with students and then I realized like there's not much room for gigs uh, at, at the unless you're, you're willing to have the cost of a lot of uh, annoyed parents having to reschedule all the time. Um, so after a couple years, I began to think more about uh, what I wanted to do for the future. And I started to feel like teaching at a college eventually would be something I'd be interested in. And I also felt like, you know, I wanted to have more lessons and I wanted to, um, you know, continue to develop as a musician. And so that's what brought me to Madison to do my DMA because I was really interested in working with Uri Vardy, who just retired here. Um, and uh, he leaves behind an amazing legacy. But, um, you know, he, he took me as a student and he was really one of the best teachers I've had because he works on more than cello playing. He really develops you as a person. And I was really fortunate to be able to work with him for three years and experience a lot of self-growth and personal discovery. Um, and also in Madison, you know, it was a very different type of place than uh, where I'd been before. You know, East Coast conservatory setting is nothing at all like Midwestern state school. And so just the types of people I met here and um, the types of professional work I was doing and, and the types of opportunities I had were, were quite different. Um, and that's where I still am. Um, here in, in Madison, and a lot of the things I'm doing now, uh, I started when I was still doing the DMA program. I finished right as the pandemic was starting, which was not great timing. Uh, but fortunately, I had you know been involved in things outside of uh, UW, so I'm uh, now a principal cellist of the Lacrosse Symphony, which is in Western Wisconsin. It's a regional orchestra, so I don't commute there all the time. Uh, it's just once a month, but uh, it's a wonderful gig, really wonderful group, and. Uh, I really enjoy the opportunities I've had there. Um, I teach privately at a program here. I also teach online at uh, Virtue Academy, which is a purely online program, which we can talk about in a bit. Um, I co-direct a chamber music program here for pre-college students. And this year I've started doing some work for the International Cello Institute, which I know has been previously discussed on this channel. Anna Clift was here. Uh, this summer I'm going to be directing a program for them for cellists ages 9 to 13 called iConnect, which is going to be both in person in Davenport, Iowa, and online. And I'm also going to develop some initiatives for like pre-professional students 
I do some work with um, some college students there and high schoolers at their main festival. Because last year I got involved with them as a teaching fellow, uh, which was a really great experience, even though it was all on Zoom. Um, so I'm doing that. And then I recently formed a piano clarinet cello trio called Trio de Eleman. And we have some concerts coming up. So um, needless to say, I always just get up in the morning, start working, and then finish working and go to bed, basically. There's uh, not much time uh, for for much else, but it's it's all great. And um, like I said, you know, I'm happy to be able to be doing this stuff right now and that we're at a point with COVID and everything where um, this is all possible again. Yeah, it's it sure is great when you love what you do. Yes. All right. Well, I, uh, a number of things to talk about. But let's do start with the, the question about motivation, the mm-hmm. things that you do, your favorite go-tos to get people in the habit of practicing, where they see the joys of practicing. Uh, what are some of your favorite uh, devices along these lines? Right, right. Yeah, well, this is the question that we all deal with as teachers. And I find that motivation at the end has to be intrinsic. It has to come from the inside. And so to that end, I really try to understand exactly how my students are perceiving a lesson situation and how they're perceiving practicing. Uh, because sometimes we can make assumptions as teachers, like, oh, well, they just, they're not into it, or oh, like, they're really busy. But oftentimes there's something more there, like they may feel badly about their playing, or maybe they previously had a teacher who would yell at them if they didn't practice, and it was really negative, and then they kind of got discouraged from it or whatever. Um, so I'm always just asking questions, you know, like when a student comes in, I'm just, you know, off the bat asking, well, how's everything been going? And sometimes I hear other things like, oh, the power went out yesterday, and you know, <laughs> I had a soccer game and all this stuff. Um, but, you know, then we get into a discussion about, well, how is your phoreology? going and you know what were some some challenges perhaps that that came up um and uh, sometimes they're still not very descriptive uh but then once they they play um you know i'll ask them about specific places like well how did you practice this you know like what were some things you were focusing on and if the answer is well i didn't really practice it then we'll talk about that okay well you know what what is getting in the way um, you know, because I think sometimes students can feel very overwhelmed, especially in high school when they have APs and sports and, you know, they're just so packed with their schedule, um, you know, or again, they may feel like, you know, well, you know, I, I'm just not that good or whatever. And it's important to really see exactly what those fundamental causes are and then address them with the students. So I might help them make a plan like, okay, when are you free? Four to 4.30. That's when you'll practice. Here's how you'll do it. Um, You know, if they're having self-esteem issues, you know, I'll remind them that, you know, it's just playing an instrument. It's, you don't want to think about yourself as being good or bad. You know, I've been thinking about this a lot lately and I think it makes a big difference because what we're doing in the end is conveying something that's on a page and that can still be somewhat effective even if you don't have the technique of Yo-Yo Ma. So I try to use words like, I thought that was mostly effective or maybe that was that was not so effective. Here's how it can be more effective because then fe- people feel better about themselves because no one comes up to you and says, Benjamin, you're an ineffective person. Right. You know, they'll say, oh, you're a great guy. You're, you're a good person. And so I just feel like those are better uh, descriptors. It just like the language I use with students, I think, makes a difference on how they perceive how I think of them. And then that kind of helps them feel more empowered. And then the other thing, too, is making sure that they have a clear 
plan of how to actually address an issue on the instrument. Because, you know, when I first started teaching, you know, I would just tell them, okay, practice it this way and do it this many times, perhaps do it the metronome, isolate a shift, think about the preparation, all this stuff. And I thought I was pretty clear and they come back and it was clear to me, they did not take it in at all, <laughs> you know, and it, because sometimes, you know, you have to realize as a teacher that, I mean, you're a very experienced you know, cellist and in our case, and things may seem very obvious to you, but to a student who's never really tried this before, like depending on how they're focusing at the time or, um, you know, how they're perceiving things, how they learn, they may not get it at all. You know, so you really like have to almost ask them to like, kind of like show you how they will practice and, you know, give them tools so that, you know, if they get frustrated, they can take a step back and, and draw on certain things because practicing in the end has to be a constructive activity. You know, I feel like too many students, like, you know, if they do get to the practice room and, you know, they've been motivated to practice, but it's not going well, they feel lost and they feel like, Oh, I'm just, uh, I'm just not good at this. You know? And, and I have students who express those things. Like, you know, sometimes there's a, a lot of live commentary, you know, they played through the piece. Oh, that was bad. Oh, I, I didn't get that. And like, okay, but those aren't helpful thoughts. Right. Like, let, let's address it. Why did you not like it? And how can we fix it? You know, that's all it is. So you really have to put it in perspective for them and give them not only the physical tools, but the psychological tools. And I think that's all very important. I like that. I learned a number of very good things in there. Um, yeah. Yeah. I'm I, just somehow I'm reminded of the, uh, wasn't it? It was a long time ago, but working with uh, a group you were in and, and moving from D major to D flat major. And yes, yes. I was just thinking about that. And, and how in, um, I don't know, it's a little bit different, the students, different reactions. And of course, when you're doing, being able to work with them one-on-one, -on -one, you can go straight to what they need. It's a little bit different in a, in a group class. But I think in some cases, having that series of goals like that, like, okay, I want to play as well in five flats as I do in D major and two sharps. And then as they as they're heading towards that path, I, you know, you're even just the comment, the way of saying it of not being a, a good or bad, but effectiveness is uh, sometimes all it takes is a mind mindset change like that absolutely and then the the route becomes manageable and you don't beat yourself up along the way and you know what you're trying to accomplish how you're going to do there get there and and why you're doing it yeah for sure and you know that d flat major story um i think about that every time that uh you know, I kind of recall uh, that retreat because D flat major was not one of our required scales for Illinois Allstate. So we knew all of the required ones. Right. But, you know, I don't know, maybe nobody's teacher really enforced it with them or whatever, but we were all sitting there and I think we had done D major. It was all great. You said, all right, now we're doing D flat. And we were just like deers in headlights. And you're like, you got to know D flat major. But I'm happy to report, Benjamin, that I know my 
E flat major scale very well, four <laughs> octaves, six, the whole thing. And I teach it to all my students. Um, but uh, but that was a good lesson because it's like, okay, well, maybe this is a harder key. Maybe you don't need to know it for all state, but I mean, composers write in D flat major, so we have to figure it out. And even some of the things that we kind of take for granted, I think, about some students, the way they listen for intonation, the sympathetic vibrations that you'd get in a D major or a G major. And you have to listen to a key like D flat differently because of the lack of, of uh, sympathetic vibrations. Anyway, it's, it's, uh, it's always interesting, isn't it? Yes, for sure. All right. Well, let's, let's definitely, I am very curious to hear your, uh, not only your, your thoughts on how your approach to things like the Virtue Academy and iConnect but how they came to pass. Let's start with Virtue Academy. You're yeah, well, so believe it or not, um, Virtue Academy started before COVID. Um, and it was founded by a couple of students from Oberlin. They won some business venture competition over there. And their whole idea was they wanted to democratize music lessons so that people, even if they weren't in a big city or came from a position of wealth, could have access to really high quality music education. And Zoom was around by that point. They were using Zoom before it was cool in mm -hmm. 2018. But it was really just getting off the ground, as I understand it. And then I came across it in June 2020 because... I was in dire straits. I had four students in Madison, did not know if my orchestra would be playing. And my chamber program, of course, was on IATIS. So I was trying to figure out a way that I could support myself. And I came across the site because I just searched for online music lessons. Mm -hmm. And it actually seemed very legitimate. I mean, some of these ones are not quite so much, but uh, but it's very well run. Like they very much vet their teachers. Like I had to do an interview and uh, all this stuff. And I noticed one of my colleagues was teaching there. Um, so I asked her about it and she was like, oh, it's, it's great. All you have to do is turn on the computer and they take care of everything else. Um, and as it turns out, you know, when I interviewed, they told me, they said, you know, we had hundreds of teachers apply when COVID started and we've had a significant uptake in students. So they actually, they were one of the few music organizations that really benefited from the whole situation um, because a lot of people are just turning to music lessons for comfort and solace, you know, back during quarantine. And so um, it took me a while to get started on there, but I've been teaching for them now since January, 2021. Um, and it's really great because, you know, people sign up from all over the country and it can be uh, young kids, although I say it has to be at least 10 years old for me because, um, you know, I find it a little difficult to teach like four-year-olds online because of the way you have to communicate with them. But some people do it. And I, I guess there are some ways that, you know, Suzuki teachers especially have found. Um, but I've had everyone on there from 10-year-old beginners to even some like retired adult students who actually like um, – played the cello when they were younger and actually were quite serious about it and that are coming back to it now. Um, so you really see the whole gamut of background and experience and, and different uh, reasons for coming on. And they could just sign up whenever. It doesn't need to be a weekly lesson, although some people do that. And then I just get a notification. I don't have to worry about scheduling or anything. I just put in my Google calendar when I'm free. And so I get a 
texts like, oh, Jimmy's coming on Tuesday at three o'clock. I'm like, okay, great. So then I just turn on the Zoom, teach the student, um, and that's it. Um, and it's very convenient when you're an active performer because, you know, sometimes I'm out of town and I can't be teaching, but I can set aside a couple hours in the hotel where I can still teach these students. Or like if I'm really busy, I can just block off the week and, you know, there's no commitment on my end to be teaching at the same time every week. So it's a great way to, you know, have some additional teaching work while I'm doing other activities. Um, and I think it works well. You know, I mean, the only drawback is you can't really play with the students, mm -hmm. although maybe we're getting there in terms of the technology. Um, but I found that pretty much everything else can be taught and understood just as effectively. The only thing is you have to ask more questions. Because sometimes it's not entirely obvious on the screen what a student is experiencing physically. Like you can kind of tell, but you know, sometimes camera angles, like I'm always asking them, can you lower the camera so I can see at least your bridge and what's going on with the bow? Um, but you know, if the connection isn't great or if the lighting in the room isn't great, I may not pick up on certain things. And that's actually really helped me grow as a teacher because I start using some of the same tactics in my in-person lessons as well. Uh, and that gives me more information, you know, because I'm a assuming less and I'm really hearing more what the student is experiencing and I'm starting to observe more common patterns like, oh, okay, they're feeling tight here. So that's probably because of something that's going on with how they're sitting or, you know, how they're using their arm or, or whatever. Um, Cause you know, sometimes like the other thing too is, you know, in-person lessons, I still don't uh, do any sort of physical contact with the students before COVID. I, I did that with permission um, because Uri Vardy was Feldenkrais practitioner very much into that stuff. So it kind of, rubbed off on me and I was all into, you know, helping them feel the loose weight and, and doing all these sorts of exercises. Um, but now we're still maintaining distance and, and mass and everything. And so I've had to figure out both online and in person how to get the students to experience things without me helping them. Um, and I feel like that's gone well, but it's really, it, it's forced me to think a lot more about stuff. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, in the end, in person, is probably slightly better uh, just because you can feed off each other's energy. And, and I do feel like my in-person students, for the most part, I mean, it's a little easier to make a personal connection. Um, but at the same time, the fact that we can use this technology, I think, is uh, a very positive force in a lot of these people's lives. And that's what's important. You know, because I have some people come on and they tell me, you know, their Virtue Academy lesson is the highlight of their week. You know, and I'm really honored to be the facilitator of that. That's excellent. That's excellent. And and then the iConnect through the International Cello. Yeah, yeah. Well, so that started um, with an intern they had there named Daniel Knapp, who's at Oberlin Conservatory. Um, and they had had somebody write to them for Venezuela, actually, and say, are there any opportunities for students my age? And so last winter, we had an online session, and we involved that student and some others. And it was just sort of a test run. Um, but, you know, it was basically sort of like more mentorship and less of an intensive lesson experience, because mm -hmm. these were kids like eight, nine, 10 years old, but they were all actually well along. Like they were playing unaccompanied Bach and stuff. I was quite impressed. And I had finished my teaching fellowship and Anna was uh, working with me to find ways I could stay involved. And so she asked me to kind of head up this program. And basically what it uh, is going to be is um, for both in-person and virtual, there'll be regular lessons. So it's it's a little bit more substantial now. Uh, we're going to have some guest clinicians. Uh, Laura Shaw from the Brussels School of Music is going to be coming in. Um, we're going 
going to have uh, for the in-person one ensemble experiences, um, you know, other types of technique classes. And it's basically designed to inspire. You know, and the kids will also have access to all of the things that are going on at the ICI general program. And so they'll get to see, you know, people play the master classes for the principal cellist of the Boston Symphony, that sort of thing. Uh, and I think that's so valuable at that age, because I remember when I was 12, 13, you know, I definitely, even though I grew up in a very musical family, I didn't really know what the the broader cello world, the broader musical world was like. Um, and, you know, of course, we're not trying to churn out the next group of prodigies to head into Curtis. We're really just trying to get these kids uh, an experience that gets them outside of their immediate musical community and meet new people and meet other people who are also equally as passionate about learning the cello and, and learning music. That's excellent. All right. And then um, you just, I'm still thinking along the, your use of technology. You have also, um, you have some videos of uh, some of the things that I think that you performed on Wisconsin Public Radio, and then some teaching videos too, uh, particularly related to the right hand. You, um, oh do yeah, you, yeah. You use those for, uh, just for uh, like supplementing what you're teaching to your students or just as a little demonstration of your teaching approach? Um, sometimes, although those videos were initially made for other organizations. Mm -hmm. uh, so the the ones you saw, well, I, so I did play a WPR a few years ago, but that wasn't a video. That was just an audio recital. Um, I made several videos for the Lacrosse Symphony during quarantine where there was like a theme and you see me with my quarantine hair in the back of my apartment. It's not exactly <laughs> the, the most professional looking setup because there wasn't more we could do at that time. Um, but that was designed to keep engaging the symphony audience and sort of um, giving them a chance to get to know the musicians uh, more personally by hearing about our backgrounds and experiences and stuff. Um, I made a video for Farley's during quarantine in an effort, again, to keep engaging students. Farley's is the program I teach for in Madison. Um, and then the bow arm video I made for the Credo Music Festival as part of one of their YouTube series. And I had just done a presentation on that for ICI. Uh, and so I thought that might be a good topic. Um, so, you know, it's mainly sort of be, uh, you know, being invited um, to, you know, create some pedagogical things and um, just kind of showing what I'm about. I mean, 10 years from now, I might look at it like, oh, well, that's not how I teach it now. Hopefully it won't be how I, I teach it in, in 10 years. I hope I continue to grow. Um, but I do use those sometimes, you know, in lessons, just, you know, as a, a reference point for students. It's like we're working on the concept and I might mention, oh, well, I made this video for Credo last winter. It's the same stuff. I'll be going and take a look at it. Um, and I've thought about doing more, um, you know, because I think it's important for all of us to just keep sharing ideas. You know, I never got this idea of uh, teachers kind of keeping their their tricks close to the chest. It's like, come on, you guys, we're all working towards the same thing. You know, no reason for it to be a secret. But, you know, now with things like Cello Bello and, um, you know, all these great online resources, I think we're kind of, we are moving into a, a phase of, of great sharing of knowledge. Um and I'm happy to contribute to that. Yeah, I think so. I think, you know, uh, ASTA, American String Teachers Association, they got that ball rolling. And I think particularly in America, it's just been 
more and more in that direction. It's it's nice to see Australia, their String Teachers Association, the ESTA, European String Teachers Association. Like what you say, we're kind of, if we take that attitude of we're all in together to advance the field of string teaching, and if we can make it to where we're all as effective of teachers as possible, that only helps us to uh, generate more people who are interested in, in learning the joys of playing a string instrument and uh, showing them how they can really make it their own and be as natural at it as possible and as little time as possible. And it's all good. Yeah. Well, because I mean, for me, I, I think a lot about the future. You're like, where is this all going? And I think classical music for understandable reasons, we tend to be very focused on the past both in terms of the repertoire that we play and also the way that we teach, the way that we um, sort of present ourselves. Um, but, you know, my paternal grandfather, William Brussel Sr., uh, turned 91 this year, and he's still teaching. Wow. And he, just, just a couple students in a chamber group, as I understand it. But, you know, he was viola professor at University of Iowa, played in Stradivari String Quartet. And, you know, when he turned 90, I wrote to him, I said, gee, Grandpa, if I make it to 90, it'll be the year 2080. And boy, wouldn't that be something to teach a cello lesson in the year 2080? You know, just think of what the world will be like and what the purpose of being a musician will be at that time. I feel like it'll be very different than it is now. I mean, just in my lifetime, I've seen so much change, you know, particularly in the last, you know, few years, you know, with the pandemic and uh, how that's influenced things and, you know, what's going on in the rest of the world. Um, so that's really where my mind is, is, you know, in the end, what are we trying to accomplish for the world around us, you know, and not just for ourselves? Because that's what I want my legacy to be, you know, what I did for other people and not necessarily like, oh, he, you know, went to some fancy school and won some competition. I mean, that's only really important to me. You know, what's more important is that some kid in, in the future will remember having an inspiring experience with me in the cello lesson. Like if, if that ends up being the case, I'll die happy. Excellent. Oh, those are very inspirational words. Now, but we have to talk about this um, this trio. I say, yeah, yeah, interesting. The cello, the cello world. We love playing orchestral music, and we have lots of solo stuff that's great. But the chamber music world is so rewarding too. I think, of course, the main thing that catches our attention is the string quartet repertoire or the the traditional piano trio of violin, viola, and cello. I mean, violin, cello, and piano. But um, there. Sorry, my brain was already moving towards where there, there are several pieces for flute and cello piano, and then also some very beautiful pieces for clarinet and cello and piano. And you have put together the latter ensemble. Yeah. How did that come to pass? Well, it's, it's kind of a, a, a long story because before the pandemic, um, we had a wonderful new clarinetist come into Lacrosse Symphony uh, named Sarah Manazra, who's uh, the professor at UW-Stevens Point. Um, and we kind of got to know each other through our, our gigs there. And we were doing a kids concert one day and we got to talking and she said, hey, you know, I'd love to do some stuff with cello. And I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, no, let's let's keep talking about it. And then two months later, of course, it was lockdown. So uh, we kind of just 
just went on hiatus for a year and a half. And then last fall, I got back in touch with her because now she was finally back into the symphony. We did strings only for a whole year, basically. Um, and I said, hey, would you still be interested in collaborating? She's like, yeah. And she said, you know, I'd love to do some of the, the great trio repertoire. Um, so then I brought in another colleague of mine, Catherine Peterson, who teaches at Music Institute of Chicago, where I used to teach. And we were actually an undergrad together at NEC. Mm -hmm. We were in a chamber group right away. Uh, freshman year and she played for my freshman jury and um, we've done some recitals together and she's a phenomenal musician you know she's, she's one of those collaborators that like you know she's so professional and so smart and she'll also just tell you like it is mm -hmm. um, and, and she really like you know kind of uh, helps her collaborators grow along with her. And it's Sarah's the same way. Um, mm -hmm. So I was like, oh, we, we all have to, to get together. The thing is with all of our schedules, it was uh, a while before we were able to actually arrange an in-person meeting because we're coming from different places. But now this summer, it's finally happening. Uh, we're really excited. We um, got on the Rush Hour concert series through the International Music Foundation in Chicago. Uh, that's going to be the day after Independence Day, July 5th. And then we're doing um, a couple of concerts here in Madison. One is sort of invite only it's at a house but the other is at uh, a catholic church here um and we're called trio de elemon which is a reference to the uh diversity of elements that we bring to the music with our diverse instruments because that's the thing about playing in a clarinet trio is it's it's very uh you know kind of disparate the the different voices that are there uh so that presents both a, a great challenge but also a great opportunity for expression um and uh so we're really excited with everything we're putting together we're going to be doing the Ferranc Louise Ferranc trio uh which is a beautiful classical work uh and then the famous Brahms clarinet trio so I'm practicing my high F sharp in the second movement <laughs> Find out of nowhere, maybe put a little scotch tape up there. Um, <laughs> but we, we recently uh, put up a Facebook page, so I would encourage viewers to go and find us. And uh, if you're in Chicago or Madison week after the 4th, check us out. Terrific, terrific. You know, and it's I think it's very fascinating to play with clarinet in terms of the way it makes you think about use of vibrato, yeah. playing with them. And also how blending the timbre is just different enough in the three different registers for clarinet that the, the way to fit inside their sound kind of feels a little bit different. I don't know if you if you think that or, or oh, not. Oh, absolutely. No, I mean, it's, it's a really revealing experience for sure. Like even coming down to like matching intonation, um, ensemble, you know, because when a clarinetist breathes, it takes a moment before the sound actually happens. So you can't really follow their cue the way that you would with a violinist. And the vibrato question is something that we've already discussed quite a lot. And actually, I'm, I'm still uh, doing what I, I typically do uh, for the most part, because it you know, adds a nice contrast and, and it can work well. The only thing is, you know, like when you're doing like a unison or something, you have to be careful because, you know, the clarinetist isn't going to be vibrating. And so you have to make sure that you're not distorting your pitch. Uh, you know, so I'm not going to be going crazy with it when we have something together. Um, but, uh, but yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's a really cool experience and um, I'm really fortunate to have those colleagues to work with. Yeah. And they can taper with us out into nothing. 
that can be yeah. and, and that that's really Brahms makes full use of that in the way he writes either like the end of the first movement where we're just on that low C sharp oh. you know it, it's really especially in a really resonant space which fortunately we have a couple of those we're going to play in um you know it really yeah it's, it's such a unique instrument so I've been learning a lot excellent all right and uh other projects performances coming up in 2022 um, well, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, the, the trio, we're hoping to do some more stuff. Um, I'm, uh, I've, I've been talking about doing a, a double dual concert with a colleague at Bemidji State University, but that's, uh, stay tuned about that. I don't know. Right. details. Um, and, uh, you know, of course, you know, uh, lacrosse and everything will be starting up again in the fall. Um, and, uh, you know, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm definitely, quite busy with everything I'm, I'm doing between ICI and my programs in Madison and my online work, um, you know, because I'm sort of uh, recruiting for everything, you know, mm -hmm. and uh, getting interest in everything because it's all very new, the ICI program and, and the trio and then like, you know, different chamber workshops we do here in Madison, um, you know, so it's, uh, it's, it's hard to add too much more into the mix. Um, but, you know, it, I'm fortunate, though, because, you know, some people you know, like and I was in this place too, kind of get locked into one thing or it, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, but I find it really in, enriching to be doing a variety of stuff, you know, because I couldn't just be performing all the time and I couldn't just be teaching all the time uh, as much as I feel like teaching is really where I most belong. Um, I think Starker, you know, he famously said that I can't do one without the other. Um, and that, you know, as soon as he got on the tarmac in Bloomington, uh, then, or Indianapolis, then that's when he became the teacher. Then when he left, then he was the performer. And it's really true because when I'm having a nice balance of things, then both of them benefit. Um, and, uh, you know, so that's sort of where my focus is right now. Outstanding. I love it. All right. Well, thanks so much for your, your time and your thoughts, Dr. Prusel, and best of luck with uh, everything, all that you've got uh, going on. It sounds yeah. exciting and fun. Yeah, it is, for sure. Well, thank you so much for having me, Benjamin. Bravo to you for all these fantastic interviews. It's a wonderful resource for all of us. Well, thanks so much. All right. Till next, our paths cross. And yes, everybody for sure. For everyone else, uh, happy practicing all weekend, and we'll see you this time next Friday. Take care. And do that D-flat major scale. <laughs> yeah, amen. <laughs>